Almighty God, you are creator, maker, builder of all things. And you have placed all things in subjection to your Son, Jesus Christ. Come, Holy Spirit, and so fill us that we may consider Jesus this morning. Cause our hearts to be quickened to receive the preached word and to revel in your faithfulness and glory and majesty. Grant your grace this morning that we may hold fast to our confidence and boast in nothing else but the hope that we find in Jesus Christ and him crucified. We ask, Father, that you'll do these things in the mighty and powerful name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. This book to the Hebrews was written to a group of Jewish believers that had just recently come to Christianity. And so they were an odd bunch. They were Hebrews and Jewish in the sense that they had a very uh, steep and biblical understanding of the Messiah from their Old Testament. They knew the Old Testament. They had participated in the sacrifices. They understood all the things that were required for them to be good Jewish, faithful members of the Jewish faith. And now they had come to Christ. And they were a small congregation, probably on the outside of Rome. And this congregation was struggling to continue in their faith. They had considered going back and leaving Jesus Christ, going back to the rituals and regulations of their faith and their Judaism. And they were struggling. And so this pastor writes this sermon, which is the book of Hebrews. And he writes it to the Hebrews. And that's why it's entitled this. And this pastor is trying to encourage this congregation. He's trying to bolster them, give them strength, give them a place to stand in a world that seems so shaky to them. What we know historically is that just a few years after this book was written was when Nero came along and began killing all the, all the uh, Christians. Where was Nero killing all the Christians? In Rome. And so by God's providence, this pastor is giving strength and encouragement to these Christians who, in God's providence, this pastor didn't know this, but later on in history, just a few short years later, these men and women, children and people were going to have to lay their life down for the cause of Jesus Christ. And they're here even struggling. They're squandering. They're wondering who they are and what they need to do. So this pastor with the shepherd's heart is seeking to carefully guide and direct and shepherd and love them well. We find in chapter 2 of Hebrews that this pastor was communicating to them that they were a people who were sanctified. Look at verse 11 of chapter 2. For he who sanctifies, that's Christ, and those who are sanctified all have one source. He goes on and tells these, this, this small band of Christians, Jewish Christians, that they've, that they've been given the ability to have the, 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 the... God has thwarted or destroyed the power of death in their life. Verse 14 says that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. Not only has he destroyed the, the power of death, but he has delivered them from the fear of death. Verse 15, and deliver all those who through the fear of death were subject to lifetime slavery. So God has delivered them from this fear of death, from this power of death. He has sanctified them. And then finally we know that in Christ, verse 17 of chapter 2, Christ has become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to do what? to make propitiation, to appease the wrath of God on behalf of these people for the sins of these people. 
And so he's declared all these abstract, amazing truths. That was last week's sermon. And he had talked and, and communicated all these things to them. And then he, then he settles and he says it all in one statement in our verse this morning, in chapter 3, verse 1. He says, Therefore, because God has sanctified you in Christ, because He's overcome the power of death and the fear of death in you, because there has been this propitiation, this taking of the wrath of God in, on the, in the body of Jesus Christ on your behalf so that you're no longer with sins, therefore... And he refers to them as, and this is an indicative statement, this is, a, this is a truth claim, holy brothers. And this phrase can actually, some translations even refer to it as holy brothers and sisters. The point here is this, is that these people have been made holy by what Christ has accomplished for them. Now, do you think these people feel that way? Not at all. They feel just like you do. <laughs> they feel just as messed up and stirred up inside and, and, and doubtful and, and struggling and bumbling as each one of us do. And this pastor's coming to him and says, all of that needs to be set aside because what, has, what God has done for you is more important than what you feel on the inside. You indeed are holy brothers and sisters. Now what, notice that what he's not saying here is that everybody in the city is holy. He's saying it's only the brothers and sisters, only those who, have, who, are, the, those who are in Christ, those who are, have faith in Christ. These brothers, that's why we hear a lot of times in, in, in this jargon, we think it's just a, a southern thing where we refer to one another as, as fellow believers, as fellow church members, as brother or sister. But that's actually a biblical phrase. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. We actually have more in common in Christ than we have with our blood brothers and sisters. And so in Scripture, they refer to one another as brothers and sisters because that's how they loved one another. That's how they cared for one another. That's how they were around each other. And these people were, according to this pastor, he's saying, you are holy before God. You're holy. Now, he's telling them that because they don't feel that way. He says, not only are you holy, but he goes on and he gives them another indicative statement of truth. And he says, you who, these people who are holy, these holy brothers, you are the ones who share in a heavenly calling. You share in a heavenly calling. And what's amazing here is he's saying, not only are you holy, but you are sharing or participating as brothers and sisters in Christ in a heavenly calling. Now this understanding of calling, we think sometimes it, it refers to a special assignment that's given to a few people, maybe pastors and missionaries, and that they're called into the ministry. And so therefore, they're going to do a special assignment for God. They're going to be used in a particular and a special way for God. But sadly, that is not the phrase for calling anywhere in the New Testament. Paul uses the word, and here we find in Hebrews this word being used in a very similar way. This calling is basically and simply our roles and our vocations. What God has called us to. For some of you, your calling is to be a wife and a mother and a teacher. That's your calling. For some of you, your calling is to be a daughter or a student or a friend or a neighbor. For others of us, we may be called to be a husband, a dad, an elder, a son, a brother. God has given us these callings. He's given us these vocations, these roles, these, these certain areas. Now, each and every one of us have different set of callings, don't we? And only you are able to fill that calling, those callings, in the way that God has designed you to fulfill those. You're in the circles of influence that nobody else can fill but you. 
Brothers and sisters, I want you to know that these callings that you're in are heavenly callings. They're not, you're not just changing diapers and wiping noses. You're not just taking tests and driving to work. You're not just making widgets and, and keeping peace. You're in a heavenly calling. We all have to remind ourselves as believers, and this is what this pastor's doing here. He's saying, brothers and sisters, you are holy before God. And know that you not only are holy, but you're sharing in a holy and a heavenly calling. The things that you're doing day in and day out, taking care of the things that God has placed before you in your responsibilities, those are heavenly callings. You see what the pastor's doing? He's encouraging this congregation to understand that their life is not simply meaningless, but everything that God has placed them in in way of roles and callings has an aim, and that aim is heaven. Are you raising your children, moms and dads, with heaven in mind? Are you going to work every day with heaven in mind? Are you caring for your your siblings and those who are around you with heaven in mind? Because, see, this understanding of a heavenly calling means that we do everything with heaven in mind. We find out later on in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 16, it speaks of all these Christians who lived their lives in faith and died, and yet they were living, and they were were Noah and Abraham and all these guys who struggled and did all these things and their lives were a wreck, and you look at them, and yet by faith they lived their lives. Why? According to Hebrews 11, 16, but as it is... They desired a better country. You see, they lived their lives doing all the things that God had called them to do, participating in all the things that God had given them to do. And we're not talking about these superheroes like Abraham. We're talking about ladies like Sarah who couldn't have a child. We're talking about regular, ordinary, day-to-day stuff. They were living out their lives with a heavenly calling. It says, but as it is, they desire a better country. That is... A heavenly one. We live our lives out with this heavenly calling, with heaven in mind. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called them their God, for he has prepared for them a city. We do our work. We accomplish our vocations or our callings, if you will, with heaven in mind. This pastor here is giving them this this truth, this indicative statement. He's not saying this will happen if you make it so. No, he's saying that now because you have been made in Christ holy, you share with everyone else a heavenly calling. And right after he gives them that that truth, and he says, okay, this is the truth. This is not something that's wavering. This is something that is true. It's an indicative. It's a statement of truth. He says, now that you have that truth, I want you to do something. I want to command you to do something. This is so clear throughout all of Scripture, what God does in His Word over and over again. Paul does it in his letters. Jesus does it when he teaches. He says, this is who you are. And then he says, because of who you are, I want to command you to do something. If you are, in fact, a people who are holy, brothers and sisters, who share in the heavenly calling, I want to now give you a command. Verse 1. Consider Jesus. Consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. I pray that that God's Spirit will give you a the, the measure by which we need to adhere to this command. We live in an age of triteness. Everything has to be quick or microwaved. 
fast food or YouTube clips or smartphones with quick and instant information. Everything is fast and on the go and ready. We do not spend any time considering, and this word for considering doesn't mean make a passing glance like we would on our smartphones, but instead what this considering actually, the word actually means is to meditate on, to linger in, to spend time there, to, to be intentional, to be careful, and to consider Jesus. You see, we like our things that are quick and fast. You know why? Because when we consider them, we can draw a parameter around them and control them, right? I can, I, I can have, I can have the, the exact amount of apps that I need and no more, no less. I can go into a building and I can draw and I, I can study every facet of that building and consider every area of that building or that blueprint and now I can somehow control it. I can somehow manipulate it. I can make it my own. Here's the problem, folks, with considering Jesus. You will plumb the depths and find that there is a vastness beyond the deepest point that you go in Jesus when you consider him. You will keep dropping your line thinking you're going to hit bottom and you haven't even, you haven't even gone a, a moment's notice in the vastness of who Jesus Christ is. You can climb to the highest peaks. You can go into the furthest outreaches of space and consider Jesus to that extent and realize there are trillion more stars to see that display the glory of God. You see, when we consider Jesus, there, we, can't put the, we can't put a parameter around him and say, okay, now I have him and I can move on. We like that. We like considering things like that, that we could put a parameter around and control and say, now I've got Jesus and I'm going to move on. You won't do that with Jesus. You won't get there with Jesus. This morning, I want you as holy brothers and sisters that are involved in this heavenly calling that God has called you to, whether you like it or not, this is truth. You are involved in these heavenly callings that God has given to you. I want you to, this week, know that in these callings that God is launching you into this week, consider Jesus. Linger there. Spend time there. Don't just in a trite and very flippant way like you do your, your, your microwave dinners or your everything else. Don't go there to Jesus in that way. Ask the Lord to give you time to spend with Him. Isn't it funny that we have all kinds of devices to make things easier and quicker and more helpful so that we can, here's the phrase, save time. What are we saving time for? Could it be that we would all do really well to consider Jesus more every day with all these devices that we are saving time with to do things that are not helpful or even glorious? Let's use the things that God has given us and let's set aside those things so that we can consider Jesus. Let me make a, a more specific application. If you are not 
regularly and consistently coming and making Lord's Day a priority, then you need to start there with lingering with Jesus. That you know that, that this hour, and some of you are saying, wow, he's going to preach an hour? Yeah, probably. This hour is the most intensive, concentrated, specific time in your entire week that you're going to be considering Jesus. And you know that's true, don't you? That this is the catalyst by which all the rest of your, of your considering Jesus will be done. This is the launching point for the rest of your week. That's why it's the first day of the week, and that's why we've called, called us here, God's called us here. Why? Because every Lord's Day, you know what we're doing when we come together? We're considering Jesus. You know why? Because apart from this, we won't do it, will we? We won't. We just do not. We're going to fill our lives with all kinds of other trite things. So I want to encourage you. Allow the Lord's Day to be a priority in your life so that it can be a catalyst for the rest of your week of considering Jesus, of taking that time and using it for focusing on things that are far more valuable. Okay? We spend two hours in a movie over things that are stupid. I'm sure I'm going to get in trouble for some of that. Some parents are going to say we don't use that word. That are not wise, that are not helpful that are trite and flippant. We watch two hours of that, and we can't handle a 30-minute sermon talking about the glories of Jesus Christ. Friends, that's not, a, that's not a problem with the building or the room or the sleep at night before or anything else. You know what that is? That's a problem with your heart. Now, let me give you another disclaimer, and we're going to get to this in a minute, uh, the, the actual working through, and I, I, want to sp- I wanted to spend some time here. We are not, do not dare linger or consider Jesus for the purpose of evaluating and criticizing him. You see, we study the paper that way. We study our websites that way. We study books that way when we read them. We like this book. We don't like that book. We, we like this author. We don't like that author. We, we read our emails with a very critical mind. Friends, the reason this author wants us to consider Jesus isn't so that we can somehow have an intellectual ability that's superior to somebody else who doesn't. The reason this author wants his congregation to consider Jesus is so they can commune with their creator. You see, if this is not, if this considering Jesus is not driving us to humbly desire to be with our God, then you are doing it for the wrong reason. That is our end, is to be with our God, to commune with him, to to enjoy his presence. That's what we're doing this for. Only secondary, only subordinate to that is the idea that God helps us in some way. But God deserves our attention, our praise, our adoration, our honor, and he deserves our communing with him because it's for our good. Now the question then is this, and this is where we're going to get into the rest of our text this morning, verses 1 through 6. What are the things that we're to consider about Jesus? 
what are the three things that we're to consider about Jesus that, our, that this pastor is communicating to this congregation so that they can be encouraged and so that they can continue, so that they can, if you look at verse 6, so that they can remain and hold fast to the confidence of their faith. What are the three things that this pastor wants this congregation to consider about Jesus? Here are the three things. First, consider the faithfulness of Jesus, verses 1 and 2. Second, consider the glory of Jesus, verses 3 and 4. And then thirdly, consider the place of Jesus, verses 5 and 6. The faithfulness of Jesus, the glory of Jesus, and the place of Jesus. Let's look first at and consider for a moment the faithfulness of Jesus. Notice what this pastor does in verse 1. He says, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in the heavenly calling, consider Jesus. Now, what are we going to consider about Jesus? First is his faithfulness. For it says here in verse 1, Jesus is the apostle and the high priest of our confession. The apostle and the high priest of our confession. What's amazing here is in verse 2 it says, He was who was faithful... Jesus was faithful to him, meaning God, who appointed him, meaning Jesus. Jesus was faithful to God who appointed him as these two uh, roles or titles. He was an apostle, Jesus was, and he was a high priest. And God appointed Jesus to these two titles, to these two roles, and Jesus was faithful in both of those, absolutely faithful. As an apostle, first and foremost... We think of apostles a lot of times as the 12 apostles. That's speaking of an apostle in the sense of an office. These 12 apostles were the ones who were given the Spirit of God and went throughout Asia Minor and throughout the rest of the world proclaiming the gospel. That's what we a lot of times think of as an apostle, an office. But the word apostle can also mean, it can also be a generic term for someone who simply has a task, who's sent out by someone else. That's what the word apostle actually means, one who is sent out. And so the idea here is that Jesus is being sent out by God with this this message. And so Jesus was a faithful apostle. He was sent out by God, according to John 17, 3. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, John 17, 3, whom you have sent. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom they have sent. And so Jesus fulfilled this role as an apostle. Now, did he do that faithfully? Absolutely. To the letter. Exactly. He came being sent by God to us to show us eternal life. And that's amazing. Now, get, 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 the, get the, the understanding here. God in heaven sent Jesus Christ to earth as an apostle, one who is sent by God to show us eternal life. An amazing gift. And God God sent Jesus, and Jesus was faithful to the end to display to all of humanity who God was. He was faithful. But he's not only faithful as an apostle, but it says here in verse 1 that he was faithful as a high priest as well. Now, let me me only touch on this, and this is why. Chapters 4 through 10 of the book of Hebrews is about Jesus being a high priest. And if you look, there's, there's only 13 chapters. And so the brunt of the very middle of the book of Hebrews 
is about Jesus being a high priest. So I don't want to spend a lot of time on that this morning, but I do want to mention this, that the priest, the regular priest, had basically the responsibility, the responsibility of caring for the temple and specifically the worship of God's people. The high priest had a unique role, however. The high priest had the unique role of going into the Holy of Holies one day a year, which is the Day of Atonement, and interceding on behalf of the people's sin. He was able to go into this Holy of Holies, and he was interceding for God's people. He was mediating for them. He was going in with, 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 with the opportunity to say, would you forgive the God's people for their sin? It says here in our passage in uh, Hebrews chapter 1 that Jesus was a high priest, intermediating for us, intermediating for us. And so get this, Jesus is faithful as one who's sent by God to us to show us who God is. And he is faithful as one who goes to God for us so that we can have access to him. You, you, you understand the significance of this. If God never came down in the person of Jesus Christ, we would not know him. If God only sent Jesus as an apostle to show us who he is, then we would be damned and condemned and we would have no access to him. We would only know that we are doomed to die and live in a sinner's hell forever if that's all God did was send Jesus as an apostle. But instead, he was faithful, Christ was, as an apostle coming down from God to show us who God is, but as a high priest to intermediate for us and on our behalf so that we can have access to God. What a faithful faithful Savior we have, who is not only an apostle, but also a high priest of our confession. This confession we're going to learn about a little bit later is basically the confession that Jesus Christ came to save sinners. It's a confession of the gospel. And it has content of which we'll talk about here in another couple of weeks. Jesus, it says, according to verse 2, who was faithful to him, God, who appointed him. And notice what it says at the end of verse 2. Just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. Now that does sound a little odd, doesn't it? That for some reason, the writer here has the need to throw in Moses as a comparison between Jesus and Moses. Why? Well, I mentioned to you that these guys, are, these Christians are Jewish Christians. They had an incredibly high regard for Moses. He was the one man that was the closest to God. Of any other man. He wrote the first five books of the Old Testament. And so Moses has incredible regard and status in the eyes of these Jewish Christians. And so here the pastor is using this Old Testament reference, and he says in this passage, he says, Just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. And what he's doing is he's using this quote, and it's like if I used a phrase or a famous line from a movie. And as soon as I said the phrase or the famous line, you would immediately know what movie that was and what scene that was. These Jewish Christians knew their Old Testament. And this pastor mentioned a phrase in the middle of a book by the book of Numbers, Numbers chapter 12. They mentioned, this pastor mentions this phrase, and immediately their mind goes back to that line in Numbers chapter 12 and knows that's exactly what our pastor is referencing. He's referencing the fact in Numbers chapter 12, which Ronnie read for us this morning. If you would turn there for just a moment, I want you to see something. Numbers chapter 12. This pastor in the book of Hebrews is referencing this, this book, this chapter, Numbers chapter 12. Now, remember where we are. We're talking about the faithfulness of Jesus. 
as an apostle and as a high priest. And then he says he's just as faithful as Moses who was faithful over all of God's house. Notice what's happening in Numbers chapter 12. Miriam and Aaron, Aaron's a high, or a high priest by the way, the first one. And uh, he's the, in the lineage of all the priests. Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he had married. For he had married a Cushite woman. So Miriam and Aaron did not like Moses because of a marriage that he had participated in. He had married this lady that they didn't like. It's interesting that they actually have Miriam and Aaron as if the way it's ordered here, and most would say because Miriam is first, she's the one that had the problem, and she was able to bend Aaron's ear to come alongside of her. And so here in verse 2 of chapter 12 of Numbers, and they said, has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? You see what they're doing? They're questioning Moses' authority. Has, has the Lord only spoken through Moses? How, how narrow a view that is. Has he not spoken through us also? You see, they, they're so arrogant as to say, not, not, well, doesn't God speak through other people as well? No, they go right to the chase. They're saying, is God just speak through Moses or, or can't God speak through me too? And the idea here is that they're thwarting Moses' authority. Notice what it says in verse 2, and the Lord heard this. The Lord heard this. Now the man Moses was very meek, more than all people who were on the face of the earth. And suddenly, the Lord said to Moses and to Aaron, basically that verse is there to say that Moses wasn't going to confront them about this issue. He was very meek and humble, and so he wasn't going to confront them about this issue. So the Lord hears this in verse 4, And suddenly the Lord said to Moses and to Aaron and to Miriam, Come out, you three, to the tent of meeting. And the three of them came out. And the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud and stood at the entrance of the tent and called Aaron and Miriam, and they both came forward. This is not turning out real good for Miriam and Aaron. This is not a good scene for them. This is not something that they want to be a part of. They're not, they're not dancing around in the presence of God like we a lot of times think that people do. They are frightened. They are shaking in their boots or in their sandals. It says here in verse 5, And the Lord came down in the pillar of cloud and stood in the entrance of the tent. Verse 6, And God says, and he says, Hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. He says, okay, if there were prophets among you here, and there probably will be, I will speak to them through visions and through dreams. That's how I speak to them. Verse 7, not so with my servant Moses. This verse 7 is the verse that our pastor in the book of Hebrews is quoting. He's lifting verse 7 up. And actually he takes the rest of our passage, verses 1 through 6 of Hebrews chapter 3, and shows us this verse, verse 7. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. So he's saying, all these other prophets may be spoken to by me through visions and dreams, but not so Moses. Moses is my servant who I speak to and and is faithful in all my house. Listen to verse 8. With him, I speak mouth to mouth. Do Do you sense the intimacy here? 
In other words, Moses is unique in the sense that God says. God's saying this. Moses isn't saying this. God is saying this to them in this pillar of cloud. With him I speak mouth to mouth clearly and not in riddles. And he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? God is rebuking Miriam and Aaron and saying, Don't speak against my man, the one whom I speak through. He is a faithful servant. Don't speak against him. Verse 9, And the anger of the Lord was kindled against them, and he departed. We find out the consequences of Miriam's sin in the rest of chapter 12. Turn back to Hebrews, if you will, chapter 3. And remember that verse 7. Verse 7 of Numbers 12 says, Not so my servant Moses, he is faithful in all my house. Remember that. Chapter 3 of the book of Hebrews, we find in verse 2, chapter 3, verse 2, he's saying here, just as Moses, he's speaking of Jesus, Jesus is faithful to all God has given him to do, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. You know what's amazing here? The pastor doesn't belittle one iota the faithfulness of Moses. He doesn't say Moses is less faithful. And Jesus is more faithful. He's saying that Jesus was faithful in the same way that Moses was faithful and God said that Moses was being faithful. It's amazing. So what are we to do to this? What are we to do about this? Considering Jesus' or the faithfulness of Jesus. This is what we're to do. We're to understand that as we consider Jesus... As we go out this week in our heavenly callings and we consider Jesus, we need to consider that Jesus was faithful. He was faithful as Moses was faithful to all of God's house. And he was faithful to God's house, his household, his people, Jesus was, as an apostle to come down into our midst to show us who God is and then as a high priest to intercede for us so that we can have access to our God. Jesus is faithful. So we need to consider this faithfulness. We need to linger on it. We need to meditate on this faithfulness of Jesus Christ. We need to spend time there this week. Second thing I want us to consider, or second thing that this author, this pastor wants us to consider, is the glory of Jesus. The glory of Jesus. Let us... Consider for a moment the glory of Jesus in verses 3 through 4. Verse 3, For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as a builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. question is this. Moses in chapter 12 of Numbers was given incredible status before God. God himself comes down to Miriam and Aaron, right? And what does God say? God says, through all the prophets, if, if there were prophets among you, I'd speak to them in dreams and in visions. But how, do I spe- how does he say that he speaks with Moses? Mouth to mouth. Amazing. Can you imagine Miriam and Aaron 
they were asking the question, is, does God only speak through Moses? Well, the resounding answer is, well, yes. And you need to listen to, your, to Moses, the man that God has given to you. An amazing man whom God is the only one throughout all of Scripture where it says that God speaks mouth to mouth with someone. Moses himself is that man. And yet, and yet, our pastor here in chapter 3, verse 3 says, For Jesus has been counted more worthy, counted worthy of more glory than Moses. Now, do you see here in verse 3 that this pastor is not in any way degrading or belittling or diminishing the glory of Moses? The status, the, the, the prestige of Moses. Moses' face shone with the glory of God because he was in the presence of God. He doesn't in one way show how Moses was smaller or, little, or, or in any way little. In fact, he wants to bolster and show them, you know what, you guys have a right and clear understanding of who Moses is in relationship to God. They understood that. You know what the, the pastor here is doing? He's saying, keep Moses where he is and know that Jesus is counted more worthy of more glory and honor than even Moses. You see what he's doing here. He's saying, keep Moses in the place where he needs to be and then know that Jesus is even more glorious than that. Well, how can this be? How could it be that anyone, including Jesus, can be more glorious than Moses who stood in the presence of God and glowed and shone God's glory through his face? Well, he used a very simple analogy here. He says, it's, this, it's, a, it's the same way as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. Now, as I was thinking through this, I, was under, I began thinking, you know, not many of us, some of us, not many of us have built houses. And so this doesn't help probably as much for us in, a, in an illustration. So let me give another illustration that's more familiar to me that may help you. This may help us. When we read a really, really great book that thrills us, that grips us, that we, that we pick up and we can't put down, and we, we just mow through it because it's a great book, we don't go back to Barnes & Noble and say, this book has this, these dimensions and this size and this kind of cover, and I want a book just like this one, and go looking for a book that looks just like that one. Do we? No. When we finish that book that was so great, we don't go and say, okay, this, this, this book has a scene or it's in the setting of the medieval times, so I want to find another book that's in the setting of medieval times, and it will inevitably be just as good as this one. Not true, is it? Not at all. Maybe I can find a book that has the same names of the characters that are in this book as in the other books, and if I can do that, then it will be just as great of a book. No. When we have a great book that we have and we want to find another great book, what are we looking for? The author. Because the book has great glory and honor, right? But nowhere near the honor and glory as the author. The book we can read and set down, and what do we want when we get another one? The author. You see, do you understand that? That's what he's saying here. The builder has more glory than the building. And it says here in verse 4, for every house is built by someone. True, right? Every house has a builder. Here's the leveler of, of all the truths. But the builder of all things is God. You know what he's saying? 
God created every molecule. Every breath that you just took is God's. Everything that you own is God's. And God has placed everything under the lordship of Jesus Christ and given Jesus the glory of all things. And if you're going to understand God's glory, you need to understand that everything that you possess, everything that you are, the very fact that you exist, means that you are under the glory and majesty of who Jesus Christ is because God's placed everything under his authority. That's what's being spoken of here. So when we begin considering and thinking and trying to understand the glory of Jesus Christ, when we're considering and meditating on that, look at Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. He, meaning Christ, is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. Now listen to what it says next. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. Why? Because God's the builder of all things and he's placed all things under authority of Jesus Christ. Why? Because Jesus Christ is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. And through creation, God's glory is displayed. So we need to consider this glory. Let us consider Jesus, not only as a faithful apostle and high priest, but let's consider Jesus, who is the one who, through all of creation, he's displaying his glory. Through all of creation, he's displaying his glory. Thirdly, I want us to understand and look at and consider the place of Jesus. Verses 5 and 6. Verses 5 and 6. The place of Jesus. And this is really speaking of his position or his status. Notice with me, verse 5. Now Moses, and he's continuing this parallel, this, this comparison with Moses. Moses was faithful, notice the preposition here, in all God's house. In what way? As a servant. And that's exactly what Numbers 12 says. It says, not so my servant Moses, who is faithful in all my house. That's Numbers 12, 7, right? That's exactly what he's speaking of here. The pastor is bringing that verse back, and he's saying, now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant. Now what did Moses do as a servant to be faithful in all of God's house or his household? It says here in verse 5, to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. Moses wrote the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis through Deuteronomy. And all of that was written not for that being the end, but to speak of a day later when Christ would come. See, what Moses testified to, according to verse 5, was something we're testifying to the things that were to be spoken of later. Moses wrote Genesis, talking about Moses, or excuse me, uh, Abraham, and the promise of one to come. Trust in the promises of God. Moses, Moses wrote Exodus, where it speaks of uh, the Exodus and, 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 and the God's people leaving Egypt and then building of the tabernacle and the temple and all the different utensils and how those are going to be used so that people can have access to God. He speaks of numbers and, and, and Deuteronomy and all these things where Moses is talking and he's speaking of something that would come later, not just something that they would be living in right now. All this stuff that Moses had, he was faithful to write all these things down for God's people so that they would know who their God is and so that he would be faithful in the house as a servant to show God's people who God is. 
But notice the place or position or status of Jesus. Verse 6. But Christ is faithful, notice the preposition, over God's house. In what capacity? As a son. Moses was faithful in God's house as a servant. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. You see, what Christ did, wasn't, he wasn't just in the house telling of things that would happen later. When Jesus came, he came as one who was over the house, as the son and the Messiah. What Moses did was tell of the promises. What Jesus did was fulfill the promises. You see what happens here? Jesus' status is far more superior. Why? Because what Moses was doing was laying the groundwork, putting the foundation down. What Jesus did was build the building. He said, this is my glory. This is what I am doing. I am making for myself a kingdom. And so this pastor, who's speaking to this small band of believers who's struggling in their faith, he's saying, you're holy. Brothers and sisters, you are you're given this heavenly calling, and I want you to consider Jesus. Consider the faithfulness of Jesus. Consider the glory of Jesus. Consider the place of Jesus. I want you to turn back with me just quickly in Hebrews chapter 1 again and notice where Jesus is. According to this pastor who was preaching this sermon, he started out his sermon in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, and he says, He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of His nature, upholds the universe by the word of His power. Do you see that? After making purification for sins, what did He do? What did Christ do? He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Where is Christ? He's at the right hand of God the Father interceding for us as a high priest. You see the encouragement? He's saying, when you, when you begin considering Jesus and thinking upon Him and meditating upon Him, I want you to consider His faithfulness. Consider His glory. Consider His place. Consider His place. Now, I want to close with this passage, and, and I, want, I, want to, I want to deal with this just a bit. We've got just a little bit longer, so don't... I'm not, I'm not closing meaning like five minutes. I'm closing like in 10, 15 minutes. So give you a warning here. Verse 6. Let me read it and then I want to go, come to it. I want, us to, I want us to look at this this morning. If, if, if you've been dazing, not want, wondering what, what in the world's going on, um, ask God to give you attention right now. Okay? And we are His house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. I've been using the word house um, primarily as it was used in the book of Numbers, which is probably better translated household. There's a couple of translations that actually translate it that way. You see, a house is understood as a structure but what was spoken of in the time of Moses was not God's house in way of a facility. You know why? Because in Numbers, where were they? Wandering in the wilderness. They, get, they, they would love to have had a house. They were wandering around in tents. When he speaks of God's house, he's speaking of this household, this group of people. That's, in fact, how God has spoken of his people throughout the centuries. God never desired for a people to be stuck 
in a facility or in a structure like the temple. It was only foreshadowing something different. So in the book of Numbers, this understanding of God being, Moses being over the house speaks of this household, this group of people. Here in verse 6, we see that the pastor is actually bringing that idea out. He's saying, and we are his house, if you want to translate it, and we are his household. We are God's people. We are his, his household. Notice this, this word, if. If indeed we hold fast our confidence. You see, this pastor had a concern that I have and that so many other pastors have. He's preaching to this congregation, and he realizes in his congregation that there are those who are superficial professors. Much of this book speaks to this because what he's trying to do is he's saying, guys, this is going to get harder before it gets easier. This thing called the Christian life, the Christian journey, isn't a game. We're not playing for trifles. We're, pre- we're playing for keeps. These moms and dads were having to consider whether they were going to baptize their children because they knew that when they baptized their children, when, they, when, when their children were eight years old and said, I believe in Jesus, they didn't let them get baptized then. You know why? Because when a child was baptized, you know what the parents were saying when they were baptized? That child is old enough to make this confession and die as a martyr for their faith. That's why children weren't baptized in the early church so early on, because they took it seriously. They said when a, when a child is able to make a decision to come to Christ to the point that they'll lay their life down for it, that's when we'll baptize them. You see what these parents, these, these moms and dads, these people that have these heavenly callings, they were, they were struggling on whether they were going to continue. Is Christ enough or do I want my baby? Is Christ enough or am I willing to lay down my life and leave my family? You see, they were asking these very serious questions. And this is exactly what they had to face just a few years later, as we know from history. Nero took Christians and put them on poles and covered them in tar and used them as lights for his robes. They would take specifically, this was later on after Nero, but Christians specifically, they would take, when when the Baptists came along and they were fostering and encouraging people to be baptized as believers... There were those who would tie families to a stake at low tide and say, well, if, they're gonna, if we're going to kill them for what they believe about believer's baptism, we'll drown them. And then as tide came in, the father and the mother was having to communicate to the children, hold to your faith. Stand strong. Do not be a false professor. Can you imagine how difficult that is for a parent to to tell their children, stay with it. Christ is enough. This pastor knew that these people would be facing this. We don't face these kind of things today, folks. But I am convinced that in this congregation, there may be false professors. So this if this morning in verse 6 grips me. And it should grip you. For this morning... I want us to understand that there are two kinds of people in here this morning. And this is difficult for me, so help me here. There are those here this morning who are convinced that you're saved and you're not. 
you are indeed hardened in your own deception. You've convinced yourself that you're saved, yet you take sin lightly. You flippantly go about your life doing the things that you want to do, living your life your way, doing the things you want to be a part of. You have no regard for God, His church, His word, anything, and you are convinced because of some decision you made when you were eight years old at a children's camp when you were crying, then obviously I'm saved. Friends, you are not a Christian just because you say you are. You are not a Christian just because you were baptized or you walked the aisle or you did some event that now you feel like solidifies that. Hell is going to be filled with people who are convinced that they were okay. Understand that if you are in that place, you need to understand that you are in a very dire situation. Hell is for eternity. Now, some think that that's not helpful today. To place question marks in everybody's mind of whether they're saved or not. I'd rather put a question mark there and you solidify that, that it's true. Than for you to continue to live your life as if everything's okay because mom or dad or some other pastor or some other youth minister or somebody's told you, well, you're okay, you're a good person. And on that day of judgment... Depart from me, I never knew you. Now there's a second group of people here this morning that my heart, I don't know how to best minister to you. There are those of you who this morning that after every sin that you struggle with, you believe you're, you become unsaved. <laughs> every, every sin that you come to, you're like, dear God, how can I be saved? I still struggle in these very things that I was that, that when I was an unbeliever, I struggled with these things, and now they're still here. Lord, am I really saved? You're constantly becoming before God, beating your chest, crying out to Him, saying, God, please be merciful to me, a sinner. I continue to live this way, and I don't know how to, how to work away from it. Lord, give me repentance. Lord, give me mercy. Lord, help me with this sin. And so do you see the predicament I'm in this morning? There are those who are comfortable that I would like by the power of the Spirit of God to convict. <laughs> and then there's those this morning, this morning that feel condemned that by the power of God's Spirit I want to comfort. And so I'm going to trust and let's ask, I want to ask, I asked as I was preparing this message, Lord, by the power of your Spirit, I pray that you will, com- you, you, you will, you will afflict the comfortable <laughs> and comfort the afflicted. And my prayer is that the Spirit of God will do this in your midst. The question I want to ask this morning is, how can I know that I'm truly a Christian? How can I know that I'm truly a Christian? When we consider our own salvation, whether we are, and we use these phrases, born again, saved, a Christian, are we able to find assurance when we ask, well, am I living for the Lord? Am I being faithful? Can we find assurance if we begin preaching to ourselves and saying, you know what, I'm, I'm a good guy. I'm, I'm worthy of the salvation that God has. I mean, I'm not as bad as everybody else. I'm, 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 pretty, I'm a pretty good person on, on average kill. I'm, I'm worthy. 
Or can our assurance be considered on the basis of, I go to church, I'm in the choir, I'm an elder, I grew up in a Christian home, I have everybody around me in my workplace thinks that I'm saved, I have great status and position where I'm at. You see this passage here in verse 6 says, We are his house if indeed we hold fast. We hold fast. That word speaks of to remain, to endure. Our confession of faith says, We believe that such only are real believers who endure to the end. So the question for you this morning isn't, What have you done in the past? See, when you begin thinking of your salvation and whether you're a Christian, the issue is not, uh, well, did something happen to me back sometime at some point? Now, God may have saved you back then. But the question is, are you right now enduring? Because if you're not, then you are not. (laughs) The question isn't what happened in the past. The question is, what is God doing in me right now? Where do we find our assurance? What says here that we have to have this Holding fast in two things, two objects. Do you see this here in verse 6? The first object of the holding fast is in our confidence. In our confidence. This word for confidence is used two other times in the book of Hebrews. Let me read those to you. Hebrews chapter 4 says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. Let us then with confidence draw near to God. Now, what kind of confidence is being spoken of here in Hebrews 4? The confidence in what Jesus has done. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19 says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places, how? By the blood of Jesus. So if we hold fast to this confidence, this confidence in what Jesus has done. The second object of our holding fast here is, and our boasting and our hope. Some translations say in the pride of our hope. You know, everywhere in Scripture it talks about how we cannot boast in anything. But we do. We boast in our own efforts, our own self-help plans, our own abilities, our, 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 uh, our prestige, our status, our faithfulness. We even boast on occasion about how much we know about God, our theology and our system and how we can understand all the intricacies of, of God. We boast about all kinds of things. However, all these boasts are worthless. The boasting is being spoken of here is the boasting in our hope. This word for hope is a word for not something that might happen, but something that is going to happen. And that is our hope, that thing that's going to happen in the future of what Christ has done for us so that he will gather his people. So the question then is this. Let me close and make it very clear. And this is the closing close. We are his household if indeed we hold fast to Jesus. Not in our faithfulness, but in his faithfulness. Not in our worth and glory, but in his worth and glory. Not in our place or position in this world, but in his place at the right hand of majesty. See what this pastor is doing? See, he's come full circle. He's saying, you will be God's house if indeed you you consider Jesus who is faithful. Consider Jesus who is glorious. Consider Jesus who is at the right hand of God in majesty, who has his place before God the Father. When you consider him, meditate on him, linger in Christ, 
You will hold fast, friends. You will endure. Not because you're faithful. Not because you're worthy. Not because of your position. But because of Christ's. So holy brothers and sisters... We sing these things too. I mean, I, 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 wanted to, I wanted to mention this. This is just too good to miss. We sing these truths because they are so important for us. When through the deep waters I call you to go, the rivers of sorrow shall not overflow. For I will be with you, your troubles to bless, and sanctify you, your deepest distress. When through fiery trials your pathway shall lie, my grace all sufficient shall be your supply. The flame shall not hurt you. I only design your dross to consume and your gold to refine. The soul that on Jesus has leaned for repose I will not, I will not desert to his foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no, never, ever forsake. You see, we sing these kind of truths. So holy brothers and sisters who share in the heavenly callings that God has given to us, I want us to consider Jesus. Let us pray.